I want to take a satisfying crack at the marathon before I really retire. My build into Toronto has been a dumpster fire, but it's also been really exciting because it's kind of, I've just let go. And so whatever happens in the marathon happens, I'm going to go put myself out there. I'm going to be competitive. That was Sasha Gollish, and this is episode 108 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. Do we ever have a jam-packed episode to share with you today? This conversation with elite Canadian runner Sasha Gollish was recorded one week before the TCS Toronto Waterfront Marathon, which she just completed in a personal best time of 2.31.40. This race also served as the Canadian Marathon Championship, so Sasha's incredible performance landed her on the podium in third place alongside Tokyo Olympians Melindy Elmore and Dana Pitoreski. After turning 40 last December, Sasha kicked off her unbelievable record-setting year by running a Masters World Record for the Indoor Mile. She then proceeded to run every single Canadian Championship race from the track to the roads to the trails to running an all-out vertical kilometre. She'll conclude her season next month at the Canadian Cross-Country Championships in Ottawa. Sasha is so much more than a fast runner though. As an engineer, she has a special love for data, so we opened with a fascinating discussion about how to strike a healthy relationship with it. We talked about her active and loving upbringing and how that may be playing into what we're seeing from her today, and we even touched on dealing with disappointment by changing the story we're telling ourselves. This is a wide-ranging and important conversation for runners of all ages and ability levels, so let's get right into it with Sasha Gollish. All right, Sasha Gollish, it is an absolute pleasure to welcome you to the show. Thank you for making the time to be with us this morning. Well, and thanks for making the time to meet with me on the Canadian Thanksgiving weekend. Yes, happy Thanksgiving. Happy Turkey Day. Yeah. Now, I told you this offline, but I'll let the listeners in on it as well. We wanted to have you on the show for quite a while now. Your name's come up over and over again as uh, somebody that our audience really wants to hear from. But until very recently, I was too chicken to ask you. And of course, once I finally did, it was like, why did I wait so long? You were so lovely and so wonderful. And uh, I really didn't have anything to be afraid of. So thank you again for agreeing to chat with us. And I would say this is very long overdue. So uh, why don't we get started for those that may not know who you are. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you talking to us from? What do you do outside of your running life? Sure. So I'm up at the cottage right now, which I really should make my permanent address because I think I'm here more than when I live in Toronto. So I'm in a place called Thunder Beach, which is hilariously part of tiny townships. So I'm in a tiny little town in Ontario right now, looking out over the bay unbelievably beautiful colors. I like coming here because I get a lot more work done than when I'm in the city. So I'm wearing many hats this fall. So I'm volunteering at two different high schools, one public, one private. Um, I'm now volunteering as a cross-country coach for Toronto Metropolitan University, which is the university formerly known as Ryerson. And I've recently started a postdoc. Um, I'm going to do a bit of a pivot in my career. So I'm going to combine my love for sport um, with my love for engineering. And so I'm going to look at culture and sport through a data lens. Um, and I'm also I'm going to work for a really cool charity, I believe, but can't really say more of that until it's, uh, until it's finalized. <laughs> 
Wow. Okay. And, and <laughs> wow, there's there's so many directions I could go off of that. But I did want to talk about this later in the podcast, but maybe we can start with it now since you mentioned it, is that the data side of things. So you're an engineer. You have an engineering background. You must love data. Love it. And it can be super useful, right, as a tool sure. with our running. But we can also, it's easy to like tip over and go a little bit too far with it. And so I'd love to hear from the perspective you're coming to this with, like, where are we at with the data? What's your relationship with the data? And where do you think we're headed with it in the future to like, how can we really strike that balance and get a good relationship with the data? We're just diving right in there today. That's great. <laughs> like get right, get like right into like the hardest question. So I wrote my PhD in the connection of mathematics to engineering. And what I really learned is that, you know, we see math as these models and these ways to solve various equations, but really math is a language in its own way and a way to communicate with the world. And so I see data as the same thing. Data is a language. It's a language actually that all of us can speak, but all of us kind of speak in, in different dialects at times. And so what the data means to you and what the data means to me can be two very different things, or there can be a Venn diagram where we have an overlap of the data. Mm-hmm. Given that it's a language, it helps us to communicate certain things. So as runners, you know, either road, trail, track, whatever, that data communicates back to you or your coach what you're doing, right? I went for a two and a half hour trail run today. I went for a two and a half hour hike. Those things are same, same, but different. And then from within that, there's a whole bunch of data that you could distill. Should you need to, or should you not? Where do I think the data is going? I think it's only going to get better. Um, I think we're being sold a bill of rights that the data is pretty awesome right now. And I think it's pretty mediocre. I think we've nailed down speed mm. um, when it comes to our watches. But, you know, like I wear an Aura ring and mm. I think that technology is only going to get better. I wear an Aura ring to track my cycle. As a maybe perimenopausal, maybe not perimenopausal athlete, I need to know when I'm ovulating and when I'm going to get my period. And so I wear an Aura ring to track my temperature. There's a whole host of things that I know that might set that off. Like, do I sleep with my arm in my armpit, right? It's a little Mm. warmer than if I sleep with my hand up here. And so I think this technology is really cool. I think it's really in its infancy, and I think it's only going to get better. And I think with that, if we continue to see it as a language and not this rote tool that gives us the answer, Mm. when we start to see it as a language, it's going to become much more powerful in how we can use it, not just for training, but for our overall health. Mm -hmm. Where have you seen it? Like you you mentioned the aura ring. So you, Mm -hmm. you wear an aura ring. Has it ever, do you think, led you astray as far as it's telling you this, but you really feel deep down, like by knowing yourself and being an athlete for so long that, oh, that's, I can't really rely on it for that. Is there any example you can think of? Yeah, for sure. So I don't use, I mean, I use the readiness score. I look at it and sometimes I think it's comical. It never dictates how I feel or don't feel. And it's never for me confirming that or not confirming that. One of the things that all of these sensors don't do a good job of doing is tracking psychology and tracking neuromuscular fatigue. So like soreness. And so I've had, you know, like big workouts followed by big weight workouts where I'm like unbelievably sore the next day to the point it's like, I think said recovery run is now a said recovery walk and my recovery score is quite high, you know, because my resting heart rate's quite low. My HRV index is really good. I've slept well. 
you know, I, you can't track this right now with these devices. I've nourished well, but it doesn't track. I'm cognitively exhausted from the output from the day before Mm -hmm. and I'm physically sore. So it doesn't in a sense interfere with me where it's interfered before is trying to track too much. Um, and I've really, and even this goes back to my morning routine where I just had overcomplicated things to a point where it was so overwhelming that I was missing the point of why I was doing these grounded practices. And so I know when I've slept well. I know when I've slept well multiple nights in a row. I know when I've not slept well multiple nights in a row. I don't need a device to remind me, oh, you didn't sleep much last night. I can promise you that my eyeballs and brain are like, I didn't sleep much last night. (laughs) Right. Right. Okay. So in your opinion, like how would a, a device like that be able to build in you know, information about psychology or information about how you ate? How do you see that even going forward to build something that's a little bit more accurate? I don't, I have no answer to that question. I have absolutely no idea. And I think that's beyond our lifetime um, in terms of like brainwave tracking and all of that. And I don't even know that we know in psychology from the brainwaves when someone's having a good day versus a bad day. So I think right. we're, we're years off from that. Similar to the gut interaction And I think this is a little bit where it's the art and science of data. And the art of it is don't try and do everything at once. Like don't try and change your mindset, your diet, your sleeping patterns, your athletic patterns and everything all at once, right? Pick something that's low hanging fruit. For most people that's sleep. And for most people that's take that phone that you say is your alarm clock, buy an alarm clock. It's like $4 at Walmart (laughs) or on Amazon or wherever you get your things. Put your phone way outside of your room. And go to sleep. Mm -hmm. Anyways, that's a very tangential answer to that question. You know, this is such an interesting topic to me because, you know, I wonder, say we did get to the point where you could track brainwaves and you could know blood data as to your macro and micronutrients, you know, that you ate and how they're absorbing in your gut and all those things. You'd mentioned the data says one thing, but you know how you feel too, right? Yep. Is it the Heisenberg principle where the yep. act of observing something changes what you're observing? Yes. So, you know, like if data says I should feel tired, oh, I'm tired. Or if the data says I should feel great, or do you start questioning your feelings? And I think we maybe already are there somewhat in you, rather than using data to inform and instruct productively. Sometimes we question our own innate sense of ourselves because I have this spreadsheet that says, do you think do you think there's something to that already yeah and I think this gets back to this idea of language versus the answer right and and it's trying to talk to people and say your watch isn't the answer that one workout you did isn't the answer that one marathon you result that you have isn't the answer Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. telling you a piece of the story but it's not the whole story and it's not the story that you have to tell yourself and to the Heisenberg principle that you just so beautifully, you know, weaved in there, you get to change that focus too. So instead of the spreadsheet telling you something, Mm. you can have a conversation with that spreadsheet. And I think that's the missing piece. So one of, again, tangential here, one of the things that I've really been thinking about when it comes to training is people download, right. Or, and pay for, and, or, you know, sometimes you like some people get them for free they download a training plan off the interwebs from a coach. And it says, do this this day. Well, but why? 
it, that's data once again, right? We're all so individualistic. Mm-hmm. Maybe what these need to say is twice a week, you're doing a workout. You need to have three days between each one. You need to pick what works for you. Oh my gosh, you're a cyclist, speed skater, swimmer, Nordic skier, downhill skier. You've got all these different activities of who you are. Okay, you're going to cross train two days a week. I'm not going to tell you what that is. I'm going to tell you a feeling that you're looking for and what you should feel like going into your next workout, but I'm not going to tell you what to do. And just like the data, I think we need to stop wanting it to tell us what to do and really get in touch with our bodies so we can tell it, hey, here's what I'm actually going to do. I love that so much. I, we could talk about this all day, seriously, but we've got a lot to cover and you have had an absolute killer year. Like we are going to get all into your your 2022, but I think in order to really appreciate what we're hearing about what you did this year, let's go way, way back and hear a little bit about your upbringing first and uh, how and when you got interested in running in the first place. So I come from a very active family, grew up in North Toronto where tag and hide and seek were like the main after school activities. So we were the original like UNP treaty, my neighborhood. So I, uh, so the little Jewish family lived next door to the Iranian immigrants. And so every day the little Jewish kids and the little Iranian kids would go outside and play tag and basketball and hide and seek and toboggan and you name it for hours, like hours. Like my parents would be like, okay, like it's so dark. You need to come inside now. And you know, like they were dragging my sister and I inside and you know, like the family beside us, they were dragging their children inside. And then the cousin moved in one more house down, actually, sorry, two houses down and the grandparents were in between, like just mayhem outside. Uh, As a family, we did a lot of alpine skiing. Um, I grew up Sundays going on the Sunday long, slow bike ride with my my Zadie, my grandfather, my mom, my uncle Ed, um, sometimes his son Jeremy. Um, and we also often had like people come in and out. So Catherine Zahn, who's now, I think she's the deputy minister of health, she would come with us too. Um, so just super active. I got into running because of my mother. So one, I absolutely look like my mother now. And as my mother ages and looks fabulous, I'm like, okay, like just let's keep going on this track. Um, and my mom stayed young because she's been, you know, like she's, she's active. She keeps her mind active. She's still, you know, a practicing physician. And so when she, oh gosh, I can't even remember how young I was. I mean, I guess if I go back and do the math, when I was 12, my mom had my brother. So it was well before that, that we started running together. So like maybe somewhere around like eight you know, my mom would come home from work. She'd put her running shoes on. And I was like, I'm going for a run with my mom. I want to be my mom. And so that's how I got into running. So I was a problem child in the sense that um, grade three, so like seven years old, I walked up to my grade three teacher and was like, poetry is stupid. Never learning how to do it. I was like, math and science is going to help me at the grocery store and through life. And all this English comprehension stuff is absolutely useless. And my parents are like, okay, so our child is defiant and we're going to send her to private school and get her sorted out. (laughs) But they had cross country. And back then the elementary schools in Toronto didn't have cross country. And so I got into cross country. And you'd think I would have quit after my first season because my first race ever, what do I do? Wipe out, slice my knees open, still have a scar from it. And I was like, muddy and bloody and I'm hooked. 
Um, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and I think either that year or the following year was the inaugural, C- I don't even think it was called the CIBC run for the cure, but the inaugural run for the cure. It was a 5K in Toronto. And actually the person who won it got a Honda Civic. But my mom, my mom and I went to do this and my mom was like, okay, you lead. And I think it like, so again, it must have been before 12 because my mom had my brother at 12. So like 10 or 11, we broke 20 minutes for the 5K. So my poor mother, who wasn't necessarily training, broke 20 minutes for the 5K. So there's my, there's wow. my running start. Ooh. So do you think there's maybe a little genetic component to it then? You're- oh, for sure. My mom was a hurdler. Oh, okay. 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 That's fantastic. Now you said your mom, um, your mom's a doctor. I believe your dad is a doctor is. as well. And uh, you grew up with them having, like they have had high expectations, I've heard you say, but they rewarded your hard work. Yeah. Like, over your grades and your accomplishments. So to me, if we're looking at this through the lens of, say, Steve Magnus's Do Hard Things, um, they're really rewarding the process over the outcome. Would that be fair to say? And if so, what do, what kind of influence do you think that this had on you and your ability to perform at such a high level today? Well, and I think the missing part of that conversation is, yeah, they, they held us to, to a standard, like to the standard of excellence but they held us accountable when, when we weren't there, right? We talk about, we often talk about like the praise and the reward, but there, when you didn't, when you didn't fulfill what you said you were going to fulfill. So if you were acting like an asshole, like you were called out on acting like an asshole, you know, you either had to apologize for whatever you'd done or fulfill what you had said that you were going to do. And so, you know, reward for us wasn't really, there was nothing tangible and it wasn't even like, and it wasn't about love. It was just, I think it was the the satisfaction of having done something hard and maybe that was it. Like I've, I've never been asked about the praise and the reward. And I, and I think it was the reward was learning to be satisfied when you worked at something really hard and to hold yourself accountable when you knew you didn't put your best effort in. Right. And to me, that's intrinsic yeah. motivation. Like they were training you to really be like, connect the dots between I worked hard, I showed up, I did this and oh my goodness, that great. feels great. And so like, wow, everyone needs to have had your parents <laughs> growing wow. up because it sounds like uh, they did an amazing job instilling, again, that value of hard work, intrinsic motivation, and just how great it feels to show up and do a great job at something. So on paper, again, it can seem like, whoa, those were the perfect uh, parents. And so I'll never flounder or struggle. Like, do you think that you've ever lost your way in terms of like doing it for the fun oh of God, it or yeah. the love Still of human. it or how great it feels? <laughs> okay. Let's well, talk about that. <laughs> and then one thing I want to go back to just quickly is, you know, I think it's one thing when parents say it and then they live a different way, right? And my parents were very good at being like, oh my gosh, I made a mistake. I'm human. But they definitely paved the way for us in demonstrating what hard work meant. But they paved the way hard work through the lens of love, right? Like there was, you were always loved at the end of the day. Like no matter how bad you screwed up and my gosh, did I screw up as a child, you were loved. And I think that was allowed me to make mistakes and to fail and to do all that, but then actually go apologize and have the courage to apologize. Not, you know, like not head down, but look someone in the eyes and say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Not, but no, nothing because they, they humanized being human. And I think that was, that was really important. You asked me a question about you know, when things didn't go my way and failures, like, where do you want to start? Like as a kid, as a teenager, <laughs> as an adult, as a master's runner, like, where do you want to, like, 
what point in time can I <laughs> offer you stories from? I'd be curious about recently, because obviously you had an amazing upbringing. Like, is there ever still something that happens even this year or in the last couple of years where initially you see it as a failure and then you have to kind of, you know, tell yourself a different story about it or work through some of these lessons that you've learned all your life? Like it, you know, because I think sometimes like the the negative thinking like that can just be the default like yeah. the reflex. And then it's how we relate to it and how we work through that. That's super, super important. So um, I don't know if anything comes to mind, you know, in the last couple of years that you want to talk about. I'll talk about something pretty recently, but focusing on a second that those negative feelings, the negative bias is actually from the research what dominates for us. And so the ability to like flip the switch and play with the positive, it's a skill and it's a skill we all need to learn. And I think people brush it off as just learn to be positive and it's not, it's it's an actual skill. So one of the, the things that I've been like toying with in my head and like, honest to goodness, I need to learn how to put these on paper better, but the tension between validation and acceptance. Validation is, you know, very much in social media, like, oh, I'm posting this and I'm going to check it a hundred times a day to see how many likes that I get, right? Like that's validation and acceptance aren't the same thing. And so I quit working at the University of Toronto back in, in January, 2022. And there was a lot of imposter syndrome, a lot of failure associated with that, right? Like I quit. They didn't fire me. I hated my job. I was paid poorly. I worked in an inordinately toxic environment. I heard this great quote the other day on Adam Grant's podcast with Atul Gawande. And I think Atul Gawande might be one of my like major academic crushes. Like that man is just like, he's a superstar, superhero. And he said, culture is the worst behavior that you tolerate. It's like, oh, okay. And I think my major failure was continuing to tolerate the behavior that happened at U of T. And I should have quit that job so long ago, but I was afraid to. And I wasn't afraid to because I was afraid of losing a paycheck. I was afraid of what people might think of me, of the validation. Mm -hmm. In no world was I ever going to be accepted into the culture of teaching at U of T. I am now working with a group of people who celebrate the fact that along with my academic brain, I'm an athlete. And before, I basically had to hide and live in shame with the fact that I wanted to pursue high-level athletics. And that's not right. But I was my own worst enemy because at any point, I needed to stand up and say, this behavior is one, not okay, right? I am tolerating your worst behavior and creating a culture in my own life that is destructive. And two, to say, if this is really how you feel, then this isn't the place for me to work. And I'm moving on. But it took, me, it took me, instead of like getting there in six months, it took me like 18 months to get there. And then once I had quit, oh my gosh, the negative emotions that I went through on my own, it was a disaster. Hmm. But that took a lot of courage. Like that's a very brave thing to do. Yeah. Um, to quit? Yeah. Yeah. Because you were... Yes and no. Okay. Speak to that. No, because I come from a place of privilege where if I'm in trouble... I've got a pretty sweet safety net. So no, in that sense. But yes, in the sense of like, yeah, I stood up and quit. The validation part, right? Like there were people that were going to react. And so you said that there was negative thoughts after. Was there some relief too? Was there also positive thoughts? It took about a month to get there, but yeah. Okay. And then 
it took about a month to get there and then I really like wavered back and forth and probably like as I wasn't sleeping well or eating well or just being a human where I'm like, oh my gosh, did I make a mistake? And I didn't make a mistake. And I think it's, I think it's normal and I think it's important to have those feelings of thinking that you made a mistake to continue to self-reflect and to continue to learn to be self-compassionate. Right. I love it. And so now reflecting back on tolerating that toxic environment for longer than <laughs> necessary, um, how do you reflect on that now thinking like, oh, I should have done that sooner? Or are you just very content and at peace with where you are right now? I'm very content. I'm really proud of the fact that I didn't quit in the middle of the term to a bunch of students that I had committed to, right? Like go back to the lessons that my parents taught me mm -hmm. when I was a kid. My commitment when I am an instructor is to the students and I wasn't mm -hmm. going to leave them high and dry in the middle of October before or like major midterms, finals, et cetera, in the, in the middle of their major projects. So I'm really proud of what I was able to do and also sort of like pissed off at myself for putting myself through it as well. Right. And again, that's sort of the the tension that we're always under, that it yeah. can be both, right? Like I can be very happy and at peace and proud of myself and I can be like, why did, why did I put up with that for so long? Yeah. It can be both, right? And I think sort of learning to, to, I don't like the word balance, but, you know, learning to be okay that there can be conflicting emotions inside of us at once, I think is really They're always there. Important. Conflicting emotions are always there. You know, we spoke last week to somebody and talked about how you don't necessarily No, it was in our podcast about DNFs. <laughs> you don't necessarily know when you did the perfect race until you've had mistakes to compare it to. Yes. You don't know that you did yeah. it right until you did it wrong. And so you don't necessarily appreciate how content you are until you experience discontent and vice versa. So yeah, holding those things yeah. at once is almost essential in some ways yeah. to appreciating yeah. both, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, so, uh, something you said, so I wasn't aware of this timeline, but you quit this job in January of 2022. And I have to think now in retrospect that freeing yourself from that toxic environment maybe contributed to this unbelievably epic year that we've seen from you. So we're going to talk about that maybe again on the backdrop of you didn't become serious or uh, like a professional runner in the way that we we think until you're 32. Is that correct? Like you started professional running on the later side of things, right? So maybe eight years ago? Yeah, I'm like, oh, I'm 40 now. Yeah. So eight years ago. Well, 2015. Now. So yeah. like, no, no, 2014, right? I pan in. Okay. So yes, 2014. It's been eight years. Okay. Sorry. Math is apparently challenging for me when it comes to simple math. <laughs> me a calculus equation, no problem. Simple math. I'm sorry. That's hard. <laughs> Okay, so you you uh, became a professional runner at age 32, but this particular year, upon quitting the job in January, and then February, mid February, you went out and and just absolutely cranked off a like 114 half marathon. Off no training, like absolutely no running training, none, zero. Amazing. And that was the first half in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then a couple weeks later, came back and set a world record, everybody, like not, not just a Canadian record, but a world record in the indoor mile on February 27th of this year at the Ontario Masters Indoor Championships. So we have to just pause on that one for a second. Can you talk to us about, and again, like you're saying, not really on a ton of training. So is this your lifetime of being an athlete? Is this your cross training of, of skiing? Like what what do you think conspired to have you be able to um, 
throw down a world record in the mile just after your 40th birthday? Uh, I think uh, the conspiring, I think is pretty accurate, right? Like I've, again, right up from playing tag in the, in the street, in the backyards, um, you know, all the way through, like I've always been active, right? There's no, you know, like even when I went through what I will call my fat stage when I was, you know, like 160 pounds, I was still active, right? Riding my bike, lifting a lot of weights, alpine skiing, snowshoeing, all these different things during the pandemic, you know, when competition just really wasn't going to be a thing. I really let go in the sense. And so I'm never going to say again that I'm, so I'm a semi-pro and I'm semi-retired. I'm always staying there. Mm-hmm. Um, I want the ability to, to play. And I think that strength that I've built through cross training, whether it's fat biking, cycle cross, gravel, road, Nordic skiing, both skate and classic, um, walking my rescue dog that sometimes just doesn't listen and it's a giant pulling machine. Like that is the most epic core workout of all time. I think that played into setting that, that master's indoor mile record. And I think doing it with a couple people who Aaron Tachak, someone who's always inspired me and, and Ben DeVito is a coach and as just a human is someone I'd really admire and having Ben lead the way and then Aaron come around and absolutely kick my butt in that last hundred meters of it. I think it was just literally like I set my table to that the only thing that was going to happen was success because it wasn't about the record. It was about going out to do a really hard thing with two people that I really care about. Okay, so it wasn't necessarily I know that this is the old record and I'm oh, now sure, I'm 40. Oh, for sure and... I knew that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay, that's yeah. Let's okay. be honest. <laughs> so you, you were aware, but you still went out there and approached it from you brought that sense of fun and that sense of like curiosity and adventure that you bring to to everything it seems. You brought that to this race because like I I think I heard you say that there was no one in the stands. It wasn't like it was COVID still, right? So there was warm up in masks. It was terrible. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. So it wasn't as if you were getting all of this um, external motivation from it. Like it it really was coming from within you and like, hey, what what can I do? So that's that's so exciting. And so it was what was it? Just four just over four thirty-eight for the mile? Yeah, four thirty-eight eleven or something. I don't even remember the time. The funniest is like everyone's like, oh, when you crossed the line, did you know you had done it? I was like, no, I couldn't see a thing crossing the line. I was exhausted. (laughs) I'd done no workouts where I'd seen red. So I was for the first time having like your legs feel like absolute tree trunks and like the piano fridge bare on your back. I was like, I I'm I'm fine. I've crossed the line. I'm just going to lie down now. Well, and a mile is very different from a half marathon, which you just right two two weeks weeks apart. apart. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. And now again, did you know going into this year, so you turned 40 and I I wrote this down too, because December 27th, you're a Christmas, just always have your birthday just a little bit after Christmas. Did you like that? Yeah, you totally can milk presents when everyone's like, I'm going to give you a joint gift. And I'm like, yeah, you want me to give you a joint gift too? Yeah, you want your August birthday (laughs) present on Christmas day? Yeah, you tell me how that feels. That's a December baby. I totally hear you on that one. But did you know that you said you were aware of the other mile record? Were you aware that there was potentially all of these other records that you could go for in the year 2022? No, but Paul Oslin sure made it clear after that mile about this email being like, here are all the different indoor and outdoor records, just in case you were wondering. I was like, Paul, it's been 12 hours since I raced. Like, could I have like 12 hours to digest this? Yeah. (laughs) 
Okay. Well, on May 14th, you went uh, out to the Pacific Distance Carnival out in um, BC, is that right? To do the 10,000 on the track out there. Now, had you ever done a 10,000 before? Nope. You had never raced 25 laps on the track? No. Wow. Okay. Well, then you have to tell me about this one on May 14th. Well, thank goodness for Natasha Wodak. So I went out, I ended up staying with Tash and like, thank the stars. Oh my gosh. So she's, you know, like arguably one of the most decorated 10,000 meter runners in Canada, wonderful human, and just basically walked me through the various feelings and emotions that I would have in the race. Couple that with then come race day, Natasha Wodak has the most distinctive voice ever. And every lap hearing her was absolutely like fantastically awesome. Leslie Sexton, who's another like super cool human who brought me beer for after because we trade beer depending on who's in whose location. She was the rabbit and then she was going to finish, which is just like Leslie too is having an absolutely extraordinary year as well. Yes, I got up to watch her run the world champion or yeah, world championships marathon along with um, Kinsey Middleton and Alyssa Legault. Again, I was surrounded by great community and had been given just the best advice from one of the best in Canada at this. So it was a shockingly fun and awful experience all at once. So my left calf, somewhere around like 72 or 7,500, was like, that's nice. We're done. So we're just going to cramp over here. Um, you will not be using your toes. Best of luck to you. And so like every time I was like, okay, I'm going to pick it up a little bit. I was like, oh my God, I think my calf is going to rip out of my leg. With like a mile to go, I was like, seriously, I still have to run four more laps. I was like, I thought the 5,000 was bad, but like, really? Yeah. But you ended up finishing in 3256.89. Like to break that 33 barrier on the track is, okay, was that the goal going in? That was my question. The goal really was like, don't die. Because I was like, 25 laps of the track, I'm going to die. Um, Silly question. You're spiked up for those. Do you wear spikes? Oh gosh, not a silly question. I actually learned a really important lesson going into that race. So yes, I was spiked up. I actually really wanted to wear flats for the 10,000. With the world athletic rules, you can't wear a shoe that is more than 25 millimeters thick in the 10,000. So the same rules that apply for the 800 apply to the 10,000. Nobody, and I mean literally nobody, makes a shoe anymore that's under 30 mils. I was like, I'm going to wear my old 4%. They're great. This won't destroy my calves. And then I was like, I have 10 days to go and I got to figure out how I'm going to wear spikes for 10,000 meters. World, Hey, World Athletics, I know you're not listening to this podcast because I don't know that you listen to anybody in general, but could you pretty please change the rules for the 10,000 meter on the track? So, okay, Sasha, I see that you two weeks later ran a 10K. And I'm looking at this list of events that I have of you. And here's a trail runner question for you. What is the difference between a 10,000 meter and a 10K? Is it that you're running in circles for 10,000 meters on a track versus out on a road? Is it footwear? Well, let's start there because we just stopped at footwear for the 10,000. So yeah. So footwear to me is the, the number one thing that's different. So on the roads, the rules are very different for the 10K. So a 10K, you typically run on the roads, although you could run a 10K for cross country and then we're in a whole other host of shoe. But let's stick to 10K on the roads. So 10K on the roads, um, probably the most popular shoe that everybody knows is the Alpha Fly. Thank you, Elliot Kipchoge, for explaining through your times why this is a fast shoe. Okay. So that all of a sudden the shoes can be thicker. So I think I do apologize that I don't know what the legal limit is. I think it's like 42 mils. 
Um, they measure them with a caliper. So you wear running shoes, track spikes with the sort of name in it. They have spikes in them. You can imagine you wouldn't want spikes while running on asphalt and right. how much that would destroy your legs. That would make sense. Um, and as you sort of alluded to, the 10,000 is around a standard 400 meter track where roads for it to be count as a, for a record counting 10 K um, it has to start and finish. I think it's within 200 meters to the start. The finish has to be within 200 meters of the start line. And I think the elevation has to be like net, like as close to zero. It's like plus or minus two meters or something. Okay. That makes sense. Well, if it starts and finishes at the same spot, it pretty much has to be net zero. Right. But like the Ottawa 10 K finishes on the opposite side of the canal. Uh, Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You go up and over. Right. But that one's still legal for a record. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I was lucky enough to be able to watch that one in person in Ottawa. So that was May 28th, um, the 10K Canadian Road Championships. And you were just over 30 minutes or 33 minutes. So 33.03. And that was good for third place um, in Canada. So amazing that you were really like close in times like seven seconds correct me if I'm wrong yeah yeah yeah, but six typically the track is a little bit faster right and that's yeah because of the a little bit more of a controlled environment you've got the spikes on is that right is there anything else that in your opinion makes the racing on the track a little bit faster than the equivalent distance on the road um I mean that probably sums it up we weren't on a I don't know that we were on a mondo track so these new mondo tracks are just like Mm -hmm. like they're even faster than what you know quotation marks, traditional tracks are not cinder tracks, right? Cause that's even slower, right? right? And mm-hmm. there's a bunch of records that still stand from cinder tracks. Let's just like applaud that's all those people crazy. that have those yep. amazing records. Yes. Um, but yes, that's typically the controlled environment. So like you can imagine indoor where there's no wind, mm-hmm. although it's a 200 meter track, they also can have even faster times. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because that the wind and, and I mean, it wasn't that much of a, an issue at this particular race in Ottawa. I don't think the wind was a, a huge factor, but it was pretty warm. No, night, it was windy. We had a great tailwind fit, actually. Um, okay. It okay. was, it was very, very warm. So the one advantage I had going into Ottawa was I had raced in Costa Rica the week before where it was hot, yes. humid, at elevation and hilly. We didn't have wind in Costa Rica, but we had all those other four elements. So I was very prepared for the heat and humidity. Um, and I think kind of what's helped in 2022 and sort of as I, even with my mile, you know, is letting go of expectations, right? The expectation is go out, have a great time with your friends. Try as, you know, do the best that you can, not try, do the best that you can. And whatever that is, it is. And mm-hmm. um, Ottawa was kind of, just kind of caught me off guard in terms of how well it went. Cause I had raced a half marathon six days before traveled home from Costa Rica. I think I'd been mm-hmm. at a track meet that week too. Oh, and my, mm-hmm. I had to take a later train because my stepson had gotten into some ultimate Frisbee tournament that was like qualifying for OFSA and he was graduating mm-hmm. and I needed to be able to do it all. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Like, yes. And, was and this was, <laughs> May was busy because yeah, that that ten thousand on the track was in BC. Then the NACAC half marathon was in Costa Rica, mm-hmm. and then you're back on the plane. So, where did the recovery fit in to all of this? Because we're not even done. Like we're not even not halfway even through twenty twenty two. And it, so, was there ever a time that you struggled to recover off of all of these hard efforts? Yeah. So come July, I crashed pretty hard. But okay. just going back to the recovery between, it was about doing what I needed to stay sharp 
because there was no more with the schedule that I had picked, there was no more building towards something. And so it was a maintenance phase in terms of aerobic capacity and then and then maintaining sharpness or improving sharpness depending on what event I was going after. Um, mm-hmm. And so it, a little bit was doing the least amount possible to maximize the recovery in whatever modality that needed to be. Right. So <laughs> you were kind of probably the races were your training, right? And then yep. in between was majorly like recovering like a boss and then showing up the next week or, or the next couple of weeks and, and hitting it hard again. Well, and one of the things that's very different for me sort of as I move into this like long distance phase of my career, because the 1500, like regardless of how well these things are going, is still my favorite event of all time, is you are also improving fitness through these events, right? Like unlike mm-hmm. the 1500, okay. which is super short and about sharpness, you run... 10,000s and half marathons over two months, like you're building some pretty massive aerobic capacity along with that sharpness as well, which is a little bit different for me. Mm -hmm. Okay. I wanted to talk about that later, but now is a great time. So the 1500, so that's kind of like for, for those of, of you who maybe don't know. So we've talked about your indoor mile record. So a mile is 1,609 meters, if you want to get really, really exact. So a little bit more than four laps around an outdoor track and a little bit more than eight laps around an indoor track, I guess. So um, the 1,500 is what they call the metric mile. So it's three and three quarter laps around an outdoor track. So a little bit shorter, but also an event that I've noticed not a lot of kind of like adult recreational runners ever consider putting into their program, like going and racing on the track. So you've mentioned that this is your favorite distance of all time. What do you love about this distance? And please help me plug uh, the importance of these shorter, faster sharpening type of races in, you know, the periodization of somebody's like, you know, road running plan. So one, everybody should run a 1500. Two, if we want to get more people in it, we need to do it like they do in Europe and you need to have a beer tent. So one of the coolest things in 2014, when I went over to Europe for the first time, as I was sort of like transitioning into being an elite, was, so the elites raced the last kind of races of the night. But for hours before that, they would have masters, recreational, junior, like everybody else running. And there was one meet we went to, and it wasn't just a 1500 meter meet, like there were other events happening, but I think there were 20 heats of 1500, 20, with like 15 to 20 people in each heat. Beer tent, you're going to stick around after your 1500 and you've cooled down to drink a beer with your friends and watch the elites run. There are a lot of barriers to entry into track in Canada. We don't have a ton of them. We don't make it accessible, right? Like you go to Centennial Stadium and every other fence panel there says not for use, not for use. Like, hey, uh, who's my mayor? I can picture him. Anyways, hey, Mayor of Toronto, whose name I forget, which is terrible because you're my <laughs> friend's uncle. You talk about improving parks and recreation access to people of Toronto. Stop your lying. Go look at what's really going on and remove that barrier. Open that gate. And yeah, you're going to have to resurface that track more often. But all of a sudden, you're going to have way more money to put into stuff like that because you got people putting money back into sport in, in Toronto. And that's just a Toronto example. So people don't do it because there is a massive barrier. Like, why are you going to go race something if you can't even train it? Right. So why do I think people should do it? And why do I think it's the most fun event? 
you want to talk about satisfying, it is like absolutely satisfying to finish something so challenging. And like, you're basically sprinting for three and three quarter laps, right? Yeah. My really good friend, Eleanor Fulton was um, just on a podcast and like, I adore Eleanor. And she talked about the psychological barrier between the mile and the 1500. Like the miles are so much harder. You're like, but it's 109 meters longer. You're like, but you got like, it's four laps, right? Like the 1500, you're like, that's three plus. Right. But oh my God, four. So yeah. So if I listen, there are a whole host of things that I want to do in my lifetime, making track accessible and more popular um, is definitely up there, but I got a few other things I got to do first. (laughs) <laughs> okay, well, keep championing this. And if you need any help, let me know what I can do to help. Money tree. Can you get someone to get me a money tree? I need a money tree to support all the things I'm trying to do. <laughs> I'll get to work on that. <laughs> um, that's amazing. But I, I really think it's important to pause on this point because you are fast at the 1500. You are fast at the mile. You get faster at the half marathon and the marathon. You just do. Like you can't, I hope like so. you need some speed in order to be able then to hold that pace for longer and longer and longer. And if you're limited by your top end speed, which I think truly if that's my limit, limiter all the time is that I'm not that fast and, and fast is all relative, yep. but like I went out and did a 1500 in the winter. And I'd never raced one before. It was indoors. And I ran 545. And like, I think part of it was just not knowing that Mm -hmm. event because then I ran and did a 3000 two weeks later and I ran 545 through the 3000. (laughs) Like, like I I held it again. So, so I ran an 1141 for the, for the 3000, but I think it's an event you need to figure out because it's, it's Mm -hmm. really tolerating that discomfort, like a, a really acute discomfort for a while. Like it's, it's pretty short, but it's still a while that you're tolerating that discomfort, I think. And so if I can get myself faster at the, at the short events, then my strength always is that I can hold it longer and longer. So it's kind of like I get better as the distance gets longer, but I'm still always limited by my top end speed. So I'm actually going, I'm running a marathon in a couple months, but I'm going back in the winter and like fully doing track for at least a few months through the winter. So what are your thoughts on that for people that people that have performance goals, like where do you see the short events fitting into like your performance picture over all the distances that you do? So I want to pause here and say, I don't want to talk about it in terms of performance goals. I think everybody who runs, it's just part of your running. You need to do speed for a couple reasons. Before I get into that, I just want to say, go back because I think there's this misconception. So I don't know who started it. I'd like to sit down and have a debate to be polite with them about speed. So most people pick up a marathon training plan and it says speed day and speed day is running your marathon pace in no world. And I mean this in no world is that speed training that is called marathon training. Speed training is doing something like 200s, 150s, maybe up to a 400 if you're going hard and have like five minutes rest, but it's that short, fast stuff. So Kim, for your trail people, and I do this a lot because I absolutely love it. It's short, anywhere between eight and 30 second hills with as much recovery as you need, but you are going to go as hard as you can. Here's why it's important. Speed builds form. When you're doing whatever event it is, and every event takes some getting used to, to do, right? Like you got to learn the event, right? Like the challenge with the marathon is like, you got to learn that one too, but like, it's really challenging to recover from in comparison. Right. But all these events, you have to, to learn how to do them. 
And in every event, you get tired at some point. What's the first thing that goes? Your form. What's the first thing you should be working on? Your form. How do you do that? Speed. What's the best way to do that? Speed with hills, right? You can't cheat your form going up a hill. I promise you, you will face plant. Yes. Um, And so, you know, for the recreational runner out there that doesn't have, you know, this information, and I'm not going to call them misinformed or ill-informed. I'm going to say you've just been sold something that's maybe not quite right. But, you know, if you want to get better, not time goal wise, but just efficient and feel better running, you got to put those uncomfortable speed sessions in there. And they're unco- listen, yes. you're uncomfortable for eight seconds, eight, not a marathon, eight seconds. Yes. Yes. Well, this is interesting too, that you're saying this. So, um, you've actually worked directly on your form too, haven't oh, you? Yeah. Through, um, the runner's Academy and Dr. Chris Shepard. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Like you're at the elite of the elite level and you're still recognizing that I can improve and I can save energy if I can be a little bit more efficient with my form. So again, when we translate down to like the average runner, there's so much low hanging fruit with improving the form, isn't there? Totally. So running is often said that it's not a skill, right? Anybody can run. Totally true. There is some skill to running. And I think that that's the misnomer that needs to be dispelled. And so if the myth is, you know, like running is, isn't skilled, let's be the champions in the corner that say, you know what? It is a skilled sport. So I've been teaching some of these teaching, I should say, I've been volunteering to help kids learn how to run. Because again, I think it's a skill. And so we talk about, and this comes from Chris. And so you talk about the difference between walking and running. And so walking is very much a swinging pendulum action. And running is a, is a series of hopping from one foot to the other. No, I don't expect you to literally hop from like high knee to high knee to high knee of a race. Like you'd be exhausted. I do expect you to practice that. And so even something as simple as arms, right? Like nobody talks about like, what do you do with your arms? Oh, you bend your elbows at about 90 degrees. Think about taking two traditional tubes of toothpaste because, oh my gosh, toothpaste comes in so many different forms now, right? Two traditional, like old school, terrible for the environment, tubes of toothpaste. Take the lid off, okay? You need to hold the tube of toothpaste so that you don't squeeze the toothpaste all over the bathroom because toothpaste is also the absolute worst thing to clean. It's like sticky, it's awful, And your thumbs act as the lid on the tubes of toothpaste, right? You don't want your arms to cross the center line of your body, right? Because you can't say to kids, like, they can't cross your boobs, right? Like, (laughs) talk about the center line, right? Draw a center line down your body, right? I often get kids to sit down, right? Because when we run behind us, sometimes we straighten our arm out. And if you're sitting down, you hit the ground, right? So keeping those Mm -hmm. elbows bent at 90 degrees, right? Tubes of toothpaste in your hand. Thumbs trying to cap that toothpaste, not hard, right? Like just very relaxed because yeah. relaxed makes us run faster. And then doing some of that hopping stuff and a lot of A's and B's with the students, really getting them to focus on their arms. And then the two like drills that I would take them through were sort of some forward bent knee, back leg straight. It's a form of bounding and then backwards running. You can run backwards, right? And land on your midfoot and use your arms. You can run forwards. And just getting people to practice that, it makes such a difference. Because again, all of a sudden, like people get shin splints. They're like, oh my God, I got the worst shin splints. It's my shoes. I'm like, it ain't your shoes. It's your form, right? And Chris really helped explain that to me, right? Mm -hmm. All of these weird injuries that we have that usually happen from overuse are likely due to form, right? And so if we have better form, 
we run more efficiently, and we're less likely to get injured. And I promise you, coming back from injury is the worst. But you can't string together a year like you just had in 2020 if you're injured, right? Like injury is, right. is the first thing that will impact your performance, right? Well, and let's go back to what we talked about at the beginning. Brad Stolberg, Steve Magnus, do hard things. You want to do something hard? It's not about that one workout. It's about being consistent. How do you need to be consistent? Mm-hmm. You can't be injured. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Preach. Okay. Um, So one more thing in that Ottawa race. So uh, we mentioned in that in the 10 K you came third place. There were actually three 40 plus females in the top four, right? I think it was. And Melindy wasn't there, right? Like, can you imagine if Melindy was there too? Like, oh my gosh. (laughs) Exactly. So Natasha Wodak won, uh, you were third and Emily Setlack was fourth. So I guess I wanted to transition a little bit now into talking about the master's athlete and, and whether anything in particular has changed for you since becoming a master's athlete, anything maybe in the realm of like strength training, nutrition, recovery, any of that? I mean, I think that's always dynamic, right? And I think it's always changing no matter where age you're at, right? Um, I think our guts change over time. Again, not necessarily just as a master. I think how much sleep you need only increases as you get older. If you're trying to like really do some hard training, like literally just posted on Instagram today, you know, everyone's like, oh my gosh, you must never sleep with everything you do. I'm like, do you have any idea how much I sleep? The only way you can be productive is to actually sleep. Things that have changed, my perspective, I think is the big thing. So, and I've said this before to other people and on podcasts, like I thought I was going to turn 40 and I was like, all of a sudden I was going to have a business suit and like go to work every day. But like, (laughs) oh my God, pandemic happened. Nobody goes to work. I can wear comfy pants for the rest of my life. Um, I do like putting fancy clothes on though, sort of, like sort of fancy clothes. Who am I kidding? Not super fancy clothes. Other things that have changed, it's just, it's the wisdom, right? So when I don't have a good workout, I don't freak out about it anymore. So one of my challenges is fueling. And it's not that I'm afraid of food, but I don't prioritize eating. So I'll be like, oh my gosh, I like this workout was supposed to be an hour. I've been away from my desk for three hours. And instead of making the like 10 foot trip to the fridge, I sit down at my desk and two more hours goes by and I haven't eaten anything. So it's five hours, right? Terrible. Absolutely terrible. And so Terry Rodchenko, my coach, you know, like he's like, you need to communicate with me more just to tell me that you're eating, to hold yourself accountable to eating. And I'm like, oh, that's a good point. Right. Um, so last Thursday, I was supposed to do this, or two Thursdays ago. It doesn't matter. This workout, I was going to do six, five, four, three, two, one in kilometers. And I'm warming up. And I was like, okay, I'll just, I'll start the first interval. And I know I'm really in trouble when I'm dizzy. And it's a little bit of what Eilish McCollin is going through in terms of like not being able to process carbohydrate. So if I am not fueled and my glycogen stores are down, my body basically goes into like shut down and it won't absorb anything and it can't use a fuel. Instead of panicking and getting upset, I came in the door, I giggled. I can't remember if we had banana bread or butter tarts. What? Shoved that down my 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 pie hole. <laughs> Shoved the pie down the pie hole. Um, made sure that I ate really well for the rest of the day. Went for this like epic beach walk with the dog. Um, fueled up, got up and had one of the best workouts of my entire life the next day. Mm. Wisdom is it doesn't have to happen that day. Wisdom is even if it didn't happen the next day, I'm going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's great. I love that. Okay. Yes. And the other thing that I've heard you speak about is, um, you told you, you just mentioned your coach, Terry Rudchenko. So he's still coaching you. That's amazing. He's not even in Toronto anymore, is he? He's he lives in, in Toronto. Guelph he commutes to Guelph every day. Oh, good man. He he's a okay. good man. Okay. 
Excellent. No, I heard you say that you've told him the second that I'm not having fun anymore, I'm out. So maybe we could talk about where that fun fits into the picture here and and maybe where it's fit in for the longevity of your career. It seems from the outside that you do tend to approach everything from this very fun adventure seeking lens. Oh yeah. I'm an adventure seeker that you are not wrong about that. Um, fun is fast, right? I think um, you look at what happened with Natasha Wodak in Berlin and fun is fast. I, I posted it on social media. I feel very fortunate to know both Natasha Wodak and Trent Stellingworth. Trent Stellingworth was ironically one of my drinking buddies back in the day. I used to try and go shot for shot with Trent. Like in no <laughs> world was it ever going to work out well. Had a lot of fun doing it. But I watched pure joy from both of them. Trent is someone who speaks data in a very scientific but really engaging way with his athletes. And even when he engages, you know, with the community and how he speaks about everything from Reds to training programs. And I watched the two of them bring out the best in each other through having a lot of fun together while training. And it was a good reminder. Training for me, I sabotaged my own training probably somewhere from around the Berlin marathon. And that was when I was seeking validation because stuff at work was so bad. And because I had to pretend that I wasn't a runner and because work was so bad, I then was seeking validation from running because I couldn't get that validation acceptance from work. So it was just this like absolutely disgusting spiral Mm -hmm. of negativity. Was this 2018, 2019? Yeah. So finishing up my PhD and my gosh, I probably would have quit it all except for my supervisor and, and the committee I put together. Like I've really been thinking about what fantastic champions they were, given that everybody else in the arena and sitting in the cheap seats was absolutely awful to me. Like just disgustingly off, treated me terribly, right? Like going into to a meeting at work one day where someone said, hey, could you tell these students who are thinking about applying to this program what your project is about? Because I'm not even, and then almost like with a comma, but I'm not even sure that you still understand what your project is about and we're four years in. And thank God for a very good friend sitting beside me who put his hand on, like he, I think he saw like Popeye exploding like beside (laughs) him. Um, And so I was having no fun, right? I couldn't have fun at work because I felt judged and devalued because I was a runner pursuing, you know, and then probably devalued in the sense that like I brought a quantitative project to prove that math was a language in engineering. So like just no fun then. And then when the pandemic hit, and life was like very stressful at the beginning with my mom as an ICU, right. like COVID doctor. And I was like, oh my God, my mom's going to die every day. That was like literally what I was going through my head. I then just had to figure out how to let go and have fun again. And so right. Nordic skiing and connecting with nature and letting go of what should be in a workout brought back the joy. So, mm-hmm. you know, like I had friends up here who would be like, hey, can I pace you in a workout? And I was like, no, let's just go like – I'll run hard. You bike beside me. Let's go laugh or, you know, let's go ski in the woods and, you know, talk to the trees while we're there. And like, what other cool things can we do on our Nordic skis? Like nothing was open at the time. And every time that happens, and particularly this fall, we have a group chat called Marathon Gals. And like, I'd often choose, I'm not going to call it a sacrifice, but I would choose to do somebody else's workout that wasn't necessarily going to help me because I was going to have the greatest time spending time with that human. And I promise you that that pays dividends compared to, oh my God, I hit a time by myself. 
Well, I think this is incredibly valuable coming from, because this is often where we see the difference in the like trail running, ultra running slash road running communities is that the road running communities are often the ones that are a little bit uptight about like pace and And isolated perfect about yes exactly and so for you to be in that community saying hey guess what when you bring this sense of fun and adventure to it everyone gets better even if it's not the perfect workout for you I think holds so much weight even from having that same advice come from someone in the trail and ultra world where that's a much more accepted way to go about doing things well Well, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that Kim well I was just gonna say you know a lot of people turn their backs on the road world, right? We've heard so many of our guests oh, just say, you know, I, I ran my last you know, mile on roads and never looked back. And it was a black and white shift. I'm hearing from you, you know, what's unique about you is that you haven't turned your back on road. You've embraced it. And the, you know, what I'm hearing is the incredible range that you have, you know, that book, uh, David Epstein's range book, you know, oh, yeah. uh, that we've talked about before, Carolyn, um, not yes. only do you have range in your entire life of athletic pursuits, lots of different sports, lots of different variety, but even within running, you know, short, long, intermediate, fast, mm. slow track road, you know, you trails. Ha- yeah. Road, yeah. The, you've been able to keep it fresh and interesting and playful for yourself because you have so much to pull on. Yeah. And that, you know, that's the key to longevity, right? That's the key to not burning out, Mm -hmm. keeping, keeping yourself interested in what you're doing. At least that's what I'm hearing from you. But I'd also argue it's the key to getting better at something, right? Like Mm -hmm. you can go out and bang out, like you want to go do like five by two K, 10 by one K, six by a mile. Like you can bang that out over and over again. You're going to get stale right? You could theoretically get kind of faster in those intervals, but you're going to get stale. Uh, (laughs) Okay. Sorry. I'm going to try and actually talk about this with not laughing hysterically. So I did the Canadian (laughs) vertical uphill championships and honest to goodness, I was like, I hate this. This is the worst thing I've ever done. Why am I doing this to myself? Every inch of my body is screaming to explode. I was like, and then I, and like the funniest thing, so this woman, Donna, who organized it, she had these great signs on the trail and it would be like, you get to like three kilometers of like the nine kilometers. She's like, yeah, in no world are you even close to the finish line. Keep going. Right. Yeah. Just these like hilarious signs. You're not but almost there. <laughs> yeah. That was another one of those. She had that one too. At like the halfway point, you are not almost there. But not just that sense of playfulness, but that sense of, I was absolutely in the discomfort zone. Like- exploding in discomfort, like swearing, I would never do this again. Then decided I was like, yeah, okay, I'll go to Thailand and go to the world championships. Cause why not? But <laughs> that sense of playfulness to, you can't go to a place of discomfort in something different to get better unless you're willing to play or you can, but you're not going to get very good. Okay. Please, please fill me in on this Canadian championships in a vertical uphill. Was that Did the I Canadian get that right? what, championships? what is that? Yeah. What is that it? It's, can, it's okay. pure torture. I don't know who trains for this. Like Kim, like, I don't, I don't understand. People like me do, although I'm not at that league. <laughs> so the vertical championships is you climb a vertical kilometer. So the distance varies. Right. Last year I did the race out in Quebec and it was, I think, 7.5 K. And I was the worst athlete ever there because it was like the steepest thing. Like you literally were like climbing, like picture yourself like bouldering up something. Yeah, Yeah. scrambling. And then it was so technical that I basically had to walk to the finish line. I was like, well, I can't run in here. I've not trained on the trails at all. In no world can I run in here. It's the most technical trail I've ever seen in my life. This year was a little bit different. 
So we were out in Kelowna and like really the reason I went on this trip was my, one of my very good friends has moved to Kelowna. She was like, just come visit me. And I was like, okay, you live five minutes from my favorite Canadian vineyard. Let's go. Um, <laughs> if I must. <laughs> if I must. So the race this year was nine and a half kilometers. It was a little bit more approachable just in terms of if you didn't have like a major trail background, like you could run it. Like for sure I lost time on some of the more technical sections where people who train on the trails are, are just better at that skill than I am. The big difference, and I don't know, Kim, if this is like true for the ultra distance as well, but I was in a place of uncomfortableness and like aspirating, like 200 meters into the race, right? Like in a half marathon or a marathon, if you're too aspirating 200 meters into a race, like you're going to the hospital. Trust me. I know I did that in Berlin. Um, <laughs> well, no, in ultras, you can't be aspirating at the beginning okay. of a hundred mile or you yeah. will never finish. Right. But, same, um, same. but in the shorter trail runs for sure, you know, cause you, you okay. do have that that elevation gain, you know, gaining a thousand right. meters over four and a half K is significant. And it, it can depend on where you start too. You might actually feel yeah. altitude at the top. Right. So, yeah. yeah. And I definitely felt that at the top, like there was like not much, but just like a little bit of change. I was like, Oh, that's, there's a little, thin. I mean, I've climbed a kilometer. It's thinner up here. Okay. It's be- yeah. And I was like, Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. And then I went off course and was like, <laughs> Oh, but I went off course. <laughs> <laughs> It it does sound like fun, but again, so you've, you've done this Canadian championship, Mm -hmm. but you have, you made it a a goal of yours at the beginning of the year to do all of the Canadian Mm -hmm. championships. And so again, people that are listening might not understand that we have these Canadian championships in everything from the track to the roads, to the mountains. Mm -hmm. So what do you still have left to do on your list? I think you said you have two still to go. So what are those? Yeah, so on October 16th is the Canadian Marathon Championships. Really excited to also see Melindy Elmore um, after her incredible summer of training. Um, and she's the current, no, she's no longer the current, sorry, record holder. She was until Natasha Wodak, Ryan, her outstanding Berlin. Um, love those two ladies and the relationship they have and just how they support each other through running. And then at the end of November, I think it's the 26th because I've now mistaken this date. So it's the last Saturday in November is Canadian cross country championships up in Ottawa, which could be colder than cold. Yeah. Right. Excellent. So do you have any goals that you can share with us for Toronto? Or are you just going to go out and approach it? With the same way you've done the whole attitude? year. <laughs> yeah. So the, the goal was like, really the goal was to complete all these championships and it was to be, it's to make myself competitive at all of them as much as possible. So the marathon is definitely the one that's going to elude me in terms of being prepared. I just, I crashed really, really, really hard after the 5,000 track championships. So that was sort of the end of the spring race buildup. So at that point I'd raced the 10,000 in between the 10,000 and 10 K I got invited to the North American Caribbean and Central American half marathon championships in Costa Rica. And who's going to say no to Costa Rica. So I did that. And then three weeks later, it was the heat tornado as Natasha Wodak said, half marathon in Winnipeg which Carolyn unfortunately experienced as well. And then five days after the half marathon was a 5,000 meter champs. And, you know, in there I was volunteer coaching. I was um, volunteering, officiating. I ran a couple track races as well. And so, you know, after that 5,000, my body was like, Oh, Hey, 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 remember, remember us in here? We need a, a break. And the idea was to take like five or six days off and then get back to training. But 
I didn't take a step for 12 days and actually I barely got off the couch for 12 days. I was just such a mess. I then got a sinus cold because, you know, it's been two and a half years since any of us have had a cold. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, I'll start running again and got all excited for, I made the NACAC championships for track and field to run a 10,000 and coming home from Poland where my stepson had been um, on Canada's world junior ultimate Frisbee team, I picked up Norwalk. Um, and for those oh, of no. you that don't know what Norwalk is, it's this lovely virus um, that makes you feel like you're going to die. I can see why it kills old people. Um, and so, you know, I was I was really, really sick for almost 60 hours with Norwalk. So I missed the NACAC championships. Obviously, I basically didn't run for almost 10 days again. So my build into Toronto has been, you know, I said this before we started a dumpster fire. But it's also been really exciting because it's kind of, I've just let go. And so whatever happens in the marathon happens, I'm going to go put myself out there. I'm going to be competitive. It's not like the other races were like, I mean, Tash sent it in the 10K and she's like, oh my gosh, I went out way too hard. And you can't do that in a marathon because if you go out way too hard, like you're just, you're walking home. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It is a whole different animal. And we were talking a little bit before we started recording that you've, only ever started and finished one other marathon. No, no, I've started three. I've only finished one. Sorry, I meant you started and finished right. <laughs> only one <laughs> other, and that was the Houston Marathon. I'm not sure what year that was in. 2019. 2019. Okay. But there was Berlin and then there was the famous world championships in Doha. If we can maybe spend a few minutes on this one for those, those of you who don't know, it was, um, in the middle East, the world championships in 2019. So that it was going to be so hot for the women's marathon that they started it at midnight. Mm -hmm. wow. <laughs> and, um, just so that they would like, it was going to be hot. It was going to be humid. Like there was no way to avoid that, but they could avoid the sun by starting it at midnight. So it wasn't yes. that it wasn't sunny. So um, this is very similar conditions to the uh, half marathon championships in Winnipeg that you ran this year. And and you mentioned on the same day I was doing the marathon, which they canceled because it was those, those exact same conditions. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about what happened for you that day. And with that being your most recent crack at the marathon distance. What did you learn that you're going to then take with you into uh, your race in Toronto next weekend? I mean, there's not much to take from Doha into Toronto. <laughs> like we're, you, you know, like, yeah. yeah, don't light fireworks right before. Uh, don't run at 45.8 <laughs> with the heat index. Uh, oh my. I just, it's not comparable, right? Like, and, it, and, and, and Doha was a world championships. It was you know, it's championship racing. And I get that this is championship racing, but it's also, it's same, same, but different. I also actually, unfortunately, going into Doha. So between Houston and Doha, I started the, I was warming up for the Canadian 10K champs in Ottawa that same year. Uh, and I broke my foot in my warm up. So it changes your build into a marathon. So I had a very like non-traditional build going into, into Doha. But so we started at 12.01. It was the opening event of the World Championships, which is like kind of cool, except for the fact that they did this like five-minute fireworks show before we started. So you come out of the like, you don't come out of a tent. They had us in air-conditioned rooms because it's so hot there. So you come out of this and it's just this like smoky-filled sky. And they were like, okay, ladies, to the start line. Um, mm. And yeah, so they, they decided to start at 12.01 to avoid the sun. Um, unlike Winnipeg, there was no wind. Crowds are actually pretty big considering it's midnight in Doha and everybody else has got to go to work the next day. But it was really, really hot. And it was, you know, I, you know, climate change or unseasonably warm, whatever it was. 
you know, the men's race, which happened, I think, 10 days later, like they there, it was 32 degrees, like a, a 13 degrees Celsius difference, which I think worked out to be 22 to 24 degrees Fahrenheit, like substantial. So yeah, so it was a lapped course. Um, <laughs> I remember going through the first lap and being like, oh my God, Trent, it's like a zombie apocalypse behind me. There's bodies everywhere. And they had this like, they had golf carts picking literally bodies up off the road. Oh my goodness. Oh my gosh. It was, it was epic. And then yeah. lap two, probably around 16K, but definitely at 18K, I looked down at my arms and I was like, oh, I'm dry. And I was like, son of a bitch. I know exactly what's coming. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I've stopped sweating. Like, let's drink some water. Let's slow down. Let's get more sponges on and see if I can start sweating again. And I couldn't. And so as I'm coming through sort of like the bottle exchange zone, um, which was going to be the halfway part mark, I looked at Trent Stellingworth again, this man's name comes up, but he was at the Doha Championships working with Athletics Canada. And I was like, Trent, I've stopped sweating. And he's like, do you need me to tell you to stop? I was like, yes. I, I in fact, mm-hmm. like I understand the science, but I need somebody else to be the person that says, yes, you need to stop. So I stopped. It sucked. It hurt. 30 seconds later, well, actually first Trent put a cold towel on me and he's like, Hey, this is going to make you feel really bad. And I was like, no, it's not. And then I was like, Oh my God, I'm dry heaving. I feel terrible. And then sort of like cooling, getting my body temperature down. I, I very quickly regrouped grouped to cheer on my teammates because my day failed. But at that point, like, it was like, okay, I'll process this some other time. I got to like get myself together and cheer as hard as I can for my teammates out there that are still working as hard as they can. And yes. we all know the Lindsay Tessier story. Um, sorry, I said that in a demeaning way. I don't mean it that way at all. It was, it's a, it's a a beautiful story where this grade three teacher who's a very committed and dedicated runner finished in the top 10 at world championships. And, you know, I had a bib, so I had like, I could run anywhere on the course. I could be anywhere. Right. And so the ability to then cheer and support my teammate and watch her finish and watch her finish so strong and so well, probably will be a a memory I carry with me forever. That was pretty pretty epic. And and in full disclosure, so in preparation for the the Manitoba Marathon this year when I knew it was going to be like for the whole week ahead, I was like, "Oh boy, <laughs> this is not going to be good." I'm like, "I wonder how much I need to adjust my pace to accommodate for this heat." So I actually watched the Doha Marathon from <laughs> from start to finish because I was like, "You know what? These ladies actually so they knew it was going to be mm-hmm. hot. They had climatized all summer, presumably, if they could, yep. right? Because it was held in September. At, whereas we were, we had the worst winter, the yeah. like a really crappy cold spring. Like we had no way to acclimatize. I mean, I was saunas. That was doing my best. Yeah. I was in the sauna, and that was about it. But I knew, so I wanted to see how much it affected the women at the top. And it was like a good 15 minutes, like that more, you know, they had PRs or yeah, 15 to 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. So I said, if that's them, like, and they have the best of the best in terms of support and IST and the whole thing, it's going to be at least 20 minutes slower. So I went off with that in mind and who knows what would have happened. I only got to halfway before it got canceled, but yeah. So I watched that race, all of this to say, and Lindsay Tessie, yeah, it was, it was an absolutely amazing thing that she did that day. But, you know, as far as how you, like, I understand that you coped in that moment of like, okay, let's switch to like being cheerleader. And that's amazing. But was there ever a a moment afterwards, maybe in the days or weeks or months afterwards where like you did have to work 
to sort of come to terms with that result or, or how did you giggling? It's like a, it's like a $10,000 therapy question right there. Um, yeah, I struggled with it a lot and I, you know, I was teaching at that point at the university of Toronto in engineering science in the first year design class. And they had set up for me to give a speech when I came back, like not a speech, sorry, to give a lecture on what it was like through an engineering lens running in Doha, right? So we mm-hmm. we looked at the psychometric chart and all of the, you know, the relative humidity. I'm going to stop because I'm mm-hmm. super nerdy and boring right now. <laughs> so we, you know, we talked about it through a variety of different engineering lenses, but it, I really struggled to be able to give that lecture knowing that I had failed at the marathon. I'm obsessed with Brené Brown. She is another one of my academic crushes. She responded to my tweet when I said I got her into my my PhD thesis. And I was like, that is my moment. Thank you very much. Um, (laughs) I was listening to her and she was like, okay, people, whatever you're doing, stop. And I can't remember whose podcast she was on. She's like, this is a life-changing thing. And I was like, well, whatever. I'm just going to keep writing right now. And I'm listening. And she said, we all tell ourselves a story, but there's another story that you need to tell yourself. And in that moment, I let go. Mm -hmm. So the story I was telling myself was that I had let my family, my coaches, Team Canada down, that I was a fail, that I was a failure, not that that event was a failure. And that event was a failure from numerous things that were completely outside of my control. Mm-hmm. And it was like, okay, Brene, you are in fact correct. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to cry my eyes out right now. And then I'm going to figure out how to be self-reflective and self-compassionate so that I can learn from this and no longer see myself as I am a failure to that was a failed event because of these uncontrollable circumstances. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I also was like, I don't like running marathons. So I'm not doing this anymore. And went back to the shorter stuff. And then we had COVID. Okay. So what what then made you beyond like this was a, another Canadian championship and the marathon is part of it, but what has made you kind of want to uh, dip your toe back into the marathon this year? Well, and so this is, I'm to be announced. So here we're having an official announcement. I'm not done and I'm not retiring and I'm not retiring because I'm finally surrounded by my people. And what do I mean by that? So start this new job and I, okay, very nerdy academic. I have to fill out my bio sketch for a co-application on a grant. And I'm, I'm working alongside, you know, this wonderful human. And I said to her, I was like, what do I put down for my bio sketch? And she's like, fantastic fucking runner. And I was like, oh, I found my people. Awesome. <laughs> right? She's like, FFR. And I, so it's now FFR squared because I want to be a fantastic fucking runner and researcher because I really care about this grant. Oh. But between that, Natasha Wodak saying to me, I just love to see you take a real crack at the marathon back when I was staying with her during the 10,000 and kind of processing not just my failed Doha, but my failed Berlin. I want to take a satisfying crack at the marathon before I really retire. And like, I don't have to retire ever. You can run forever. It's the best part about being a a runner, right? Like you get to do this for the rest of your life. But, you know, it's going to, you know, as Tash talked about in her recent ShakeOut podcast, you need a couple cracks at the marathon and I haven't run one since 2019 and let's be real. Like it wasn't the greatest kind of build up. There was no enjoyment. So like I've probably got to run four or five more with a proper build. So like not what I'm doing right now, but like with a proper build to really take a crack at this. And I, and I'm, and I'm really excited to do that. And I'm really excited for the joy that I found in running again and, and looking forward to putting myself in dark 
uncomfortable places because like I'm a little bit weird that way. I mean, like you have to be as a marathoner. Oh, what are you doing? I'm going to put myself in a really uncomfortable dark place. You, what are you doing today? Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so my my expectation is just find the joy. And so next weekend, I'm really excited to run a marathon in my hometown. Hopefully, you know, like have some local people cheering for me. I got my lucky number. I got lucky number 13. Oh. Um, (laughs) So in cycling culture, you would put that number on upside down, but I'm like too afraid to do that and they'll disqualify me. And I'm like, I really (laughs) want to have fun, but like, I don't want to get disqualified. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, that is super exciting. And, and like, we do have so many amazing women in their 40s right. to, to root for and look up to right now in the sport. So you're only 40. Let me put it like yeah, that. Be 41 you're only soon. 40. And it'll be just absolutely incredible to follow along as you really rediscover the the marathon and what it's all about. Because it is a little bit of a different animal, as I said before. But uh, we cannot wait to just cheer for you and root for you and and keep on rooting for you because you are just you're so fun to cheer for you have dropped so much wisdom on us today so again thank you for for your time and just for being so real and (laughs) honest and yes very very relatable even though you're at the top of of your game in in the running world you're as relatable to the average runner as anybody else so thank you again for uh coming on and, and speaking with us today. Did you have anything you wanted to leave our audience with where where they can find you if they want to follow along too? Sure. So the one thing I'd leave you with is it, it never gets easier. It just gets faster, right? So like the uncomfortableness that you have out there in the marathon, me too. Just, it's all the same. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to find me, pretty simple on socials. I'm S Gaulish Runs. There's two L's in my last name. I'm best at posting on Instagram. I'm really, I'm sorry, TikTokers. i sort of not figured you out quite yet. Um, Twitter, I'm more of like a responder, right? Kind of like, oh, Steve Magnus, I'm going to look at your tweet, Brad Stolberg. Um, And then Facebook, I mostly post clothes to sell. I'm going to World Mountain Running Championships in Thailand in November with Athletics Canada. But unlike the other ones, this is a self-funded trip. And so since I haven't worked from January, I'm doing a little bit of a fundraising campaign. A little bit embarrassing, but true story. Okay, great. Well, we'll we'll put that in the show notes as well. Again, thanks so much, Sasha. Thank you.